1: destroying some sketches in the beginning or even some finish work in the beginning and to get to a place where you know what that drawing feels right you know something about that line makes sense on an emotional level with that particular essay
2: this is design matters with Debbie Milman 15 years, Debbie has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with illustrator Brian Ray about the Grim Reaper.
1: Having the Grim Reaper is just a complete cliche, you know, it's, it's an archetype that everyone has this kind of vision of what that is, but it really is a reminder on each page that time is precious.
2: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors, then her interview with Brian Ray.
0: Generous support for Design Matters is provided by AC Hotels and Allbirds. I love to travel. Whether it is for pleasure or business or design conferences or speaking engagements, I love to visit places I've never been before and experience new things. AC Hotels by Marriott has been striking the perfect balance of the details I want when I'm on the road. AC Hotels are intuitively designed, refined, crafted, and considered to create an elegant and unobtrusive experience that lets me maximize enjoyment, inspiration, and efficiency. The AC guest rooms provide me with everything I need and nothing I don't. They're uncluttered and truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac hotels.com to learn more. I felt the difference the moment I slipped them on. They were the most comfortable shoes I've experienced wearing. They're all birds. They're impossibly soft as if I am floating on air. They're cozy like little magic sheep hugging my feet. And they're beautiful. Now I can't stop wearing them, and they've quickly become my favorite shoe. And for good reason. Allbirds are designed with just the right amount of everything and nothing. They have clean lines and subtle detailing and are made from premium, all-natural materials like ZQ-certified merino wool and FSC-certified eucalyptus fibers. For a person with super sensitive feet like mine, wearing them is a treat and a joy. I can't recommend them enough. Allbirds are the perfect shoes for any style. Get your own pair at Allbirds.com. Brian Ray's father worked hard all his life, up before dawn, back after dark. The work ethic was the ethic in his house. After his dad retired, Brian asked him what advice he would give to a 30-year-old version of himself. His dad said, work less. It was not the answer Brian expected from his dad. So Brian... A bona fide famous illustrator did something equally unexpected. He set to work on both illustrating and writing a new book called Death Wins a Goldfish, Reflections from a Grim Reaper's Year-Long Sabbatical. It's a bittersweet, comical reminder to all of us overworked, stressed out, and overwhelmed workers of the world that there are other things besides work in life. He's here today to talk about the book and beyond in his illustrative life. Brian, you were on the podcast in 2011, so welcome back to Design Matters. Yeah, thanks for having me. Brian, 2019 has been dubbed the year of Keanu Reeves, with John Wick 3, his hilarious turn in Always Be My Maybe, Toy Story 4, Cyberpunk 2077, the filming of Bill and Ted Face the Music, and the announcement of a new Matrix film. But before all that, the real Keanu renaissance began in March, and you were there Documenting it. Can you tell us what happened? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah. So I was on a uh, a flight back from San Francisco, and I had almost actually missed the flight. They they had me on on standby mode, and uh, they kind of shuffled me down, uh, sort of at the last minute. I thought I was the last person to get on the plane, and. Behind me saunters this, you know, kind of guy with a baseball cap low over his eyes and people start taking pictures with him along the way. And I realize, you know, it's Keanu. He's getting on the plane as well. He sat a few rows up in front of me, you know, just kind of checking out, you know, seeing what he's doing. And I snapped a picture because I thought, you know, my wife's going to love this. But I didn't realize the plane was actually going to have some engine trouble. And we got rerouted to Bakersfield, which is a an airport that actually wasn't even open at the time. And where is Bakersfield? Uh, it's in California, but it's about, I'd say it's about two and a half hours outside of L.A., so it's a bit of a drive. And they kind of shuffle us all into the airport, and I'm thinking, well, you know, there's not much else to do except sit around and wait. So I start, you know, documenting, you know, as a storyteller would, not thinking that this was going to go on for a while. And as I kept Instagram posting, you know, what Keanu's up to, I end up getting in a car with him. like, a, like a, <laughs> And we drove back to uh, Los Angeles. And did he know you were documenting this at the time? I think he did, you know, in the beginning. You know, in hindsight, I look back and I thought, well, maybe there, there were a couple of things that perhaps I, you know, I probably should have held off on, on posting. Like what? Well, I mean, I think if he's kind of having some fun with us and singing songs and it seemed like he was comfortable with that. He was well aware that, you know, people were taking pictures and whatnot. But I think it was also, you know, I learned some things, too, about the power of social media. You know, there were, like, probably 250, 300 Keanu Reeves fans, like, DMing me about him and about his life and how much <laughs> he meant to them and all these things. And, and and you kind of take a step back and you're like, whoa, I didn't even realize that, you know, was actually happening. I was just kind of posting, you know, humorous things and and some things about life and things that, you know, it's just this kind of sweet moment. And we were having a nice ride and conversation, but it
0: seemed like a very intimate experience
1: yeah you know and 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 truthfully we were just we were all having a nice ride and conversation you know we learned a lot about each other along the drive but but it was just casual conversation it was nothing more than that but it just so happened he was sitting bes- <laughs> beside me in the back of a you know a school bus <laughs> yeah well it was yeah it was like a four seater caravan kind of thing you know
0: I would say about 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, I saw him in, on the street, yeah. and he was so handsome, I yeah. almost tripped over myself. Yeah, he was so handsome in person. Yeah, no,
1: he's beautiful. I mean, he's totally amazing looking, and um, and he's still, like, a genuinely sweet guy. You know, but of course, he's very private, you know, but I don't think his people had any problem with, like, a bump in his press, like, the day before he was announcing, you know, a variety of different... The biggest Keanu Reeves year <laughs> Exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 So I don't feel too yeah, bad. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Brian, we talked about your past and your rise uh, in the illustration world on the show in 2011, so I won't hew too closely to that today, but one thing I don't believe we covered last time is that your grandfather was a stonemason Mm -hmm. who also excelled at art and influenced your dad's work ethic as well. Tell us a little bit about him and his impact and and influence on you.
1: I come from a really big uh, family uh, back in New England, and my mother had seven brothers and sisters. So it was a really big family. And um, my grandfather tended to be quite shy, you know. At, at family outings, he would tend to go in the other room. He was very quiet. And I noticed that when he went into the other room, there were times that, you know, he would be you know, sometimes working in a sketchbook and things. And, and he showed it to me one day. And the drawings that he did were, weren't necessarily drawings from life or that kind of thing, but he would try to recreate a photograph. Or there was another part of the sketchbook that had images of the Tarzan comic strip, you know, but he didn't have a really high education. So I know, I also noticed that a lot of the writing in the sketchbook was my grandmother's writing. So she would actually fill wow, in. so they
0: shared a sketchbook. Yeah,
1: So, but most of it was just her, you know, adding writing to it. I never had the opportunity to ask him whether or not it was just like a relief or he was just curious about learning how to draw because, of course, he had to support a family and, and the majority of his time was spent, you know, laying brick or building stone walls and things like that.
0: While at Chelmsford High School in Massachusetts, I discovered that you won the gold prize in the Boston Globe Art Awards in 1986 and 1988.
1: <laughs> Do you remember which pieces won? I, I don't, but you've done some digging. Uh,
0: <laughs> I had, You know, we had to go deep. This, yeah. is, this is a deep cut, Brian know, Ray, I episode. We've is, already is, done the, the surface <laughs> stuff. We did the
1: surface stuff before, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly the pieces, but I do remember when I was in high school, I ended up doing a mural on one of the walls in the high school. And it's funny because when I think about that mural, there's very specific things within it that it's almost like it's a foreshadowing of where I am now in Los Angeles. Really? Yeah, it's just re- it's really, really strange. I didn't grow up surfing. I didn't grow up next to the ocean. I grew up inland. But the mural has a wave in it. I'm wearing shorts and a T-shirt. It's, you know, juxtaposed against the city, you know, with like a nice sunset in the background. And I'm thinking when I look back at that, I'm like, oh, maybe I really knew where I was, you know, where I was going to end up or something. But, yeah, it's strange to look back on it now. Two other people that won
0: awards in that same competition, I thought you'd be interested in knowing, were Chris Ware mm-hmm. and Brian Collins. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> really good company good, back in the company. 80s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You've gone on record about how your art teacher, Eric Hoover, made a huge impression on you back in high school. And yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us more.
1: You said that he was the greatest influence on your artwork. Yeah, for sure. Um I was really fortunate to have parents who were supportive of my art career, and that's not the case with a lot of, you know, young artists. Um, and as a teacher, I, I see this quite a bit with my students. But Eric, he was great in taking what he saw in my talent and really kind of su- being very supportive. of, you know, hey, this is where you could go with this. These are these are some of the options that you might have. These are the weaknesses in your work. But he did it in such a such a great way that it it wasn't. Hey, you're never gonna make it kind of thing, or hey, you got a long way to go. It was more like, you should try this, you should look at that. Hey, this other person who's a few, you know, years ahead of you is doing these things and now they're going off to college. Maybe you could explore that. And so he he turned on a lot of lights. And sometimes in the beginning, that's the best thing you can do for a student. I understand
0: that he not only encouraged you to follow your passion and help you develop confidence in your ability. But he also pushed you every step of the way during the early part of that journey. And I was really curious, how did he push you? How does how does a teacher really
1: push a student in a way that's helpful and not overwhelming? Now, having taught for a number of years, I, I get a better sense of how to do that. Um, you know, I grew up with two other brothers and we were a bit competitive, played lots of sports. And so there was always that kind of competitive rivalry but that's not the case with every student or every young person, and I think Eric probably picked up on some of that. So he was able to kind of nudge me a little bit harder than perhaps some other students. But I think with every student, it's different, you know, and you have to approach it differently. And I think a great teacher is someone who is almost like a like a sociologist on some level, or, or a psychologist, or a psychologist, yeah. right? You know, and 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 I think and I think Eric, you know, he stepped in and pushed harder when he saw me maybe coasting and not trying new things and. And then when he saw me kind of pulling back on some things, he you know he kind of stepped in and helped me you know nurture it a little bit more in other ways. So. Have you stayed in touch with him? Yeah, I have actually. I, I reach out to him probably once or twice a year. So,
0: what were you drawing at that time? Did any other career paths tempt you back then? I mean, was this always something you kind of knew you wanted to do?
1: I mean, I knew that I loved drawing more than anything else, um, and I don't think I was very good at it in the beginning. But in high school, you know, the goal is to draw as photorealistically as possible, right? And the cool thing about in my high school, because Eric was, you know, the the, the instructor for a lot of the different, you know, age groups and, depart, you know, um, levels, there were a lot of students above me that went on to have really, really interesting careers. Like a number of students went on to work for The Simpsons early on. In fact, Lance Wilder and, and John Krause were two guys who were a few years ahead of me, and they did all the background drawings. So, like, for instance, the town hall in The Simpsons is based on my town library. And, like, really? Yeah, there's like a pizza joint that's the same as one Yeah, because pizza-
0: that's also in the northeast part of the United
1: yeah, States in a, yeah.
0: in a fictional town. Yeah.
1: So I think, you know, early on it was just trying to follow their steps a little bit. but. Even before that, you know, it's just trying to draw as many comics as I could. You know, I got really good at drawing, like, you know, Garfield. <laughs> and um, I'd love to see some of yeah, those early sketches. And, like, pen and ink drawings on the back of jeans jackets for kids in the high school. So uh, did, yeah.
0: And you sold them, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of guys who wanted, you know, hey, can you do Aerosmith? And I was like, oh, God, that's a tough one.
0: <laughs> I embroidered Yes, the Yes logo oh, nice. on the back pocket of a pair of jeans that I had. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, I had those for a really long time. One of my big collection regrets is not having
1: kept those. I know. I know. I'm, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a shame to not have that, you know. It didn't make it in the high school portfolio, let's just say. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> now, in college, you had another mentor, Ron Menard, who mm-hmm. was a former editor of the Patriot News, who advised you to never work for a newspaper. Yeah.
1: So why is that? And then why didn't you heed his advice? Yeah, I mean, he was, a, he was an editor at the Patriot News in Harrisburg, and I interned. At the startup magazine that, that he had begun um, called the Harrisburg City Paper or something like that. And uh, it, it went on to become like Harrisburg's, you know, city magazine. So I was doing everything from doing illustrations for it and doing some of the paste up work. You know, this was early days of the computer kind of thing. And the thing that Ron was great about was showing me the value of working really hard. But also the. But re- really, I mean, didn't you already get
0: that from your dad? I
1: did, but but he was showing me in a way that was more aligned with creatively what I was going to be doing. Right? Okay. My dad applied the the work ethic thing, and then Ron was showing me some of the opportunities that might exist for the talent that I was starting to you know to show. But the cool thing about Ron was that he showed me that like okay, at six o'clock we turn off the lights at the shop, and we go home and we celebrate life. You know we you know we would go to. You know, we have great dinners, we have a glass of wine, you know, we'd go you know, go to the racetracks with you know the whole family kind of thing. And it was it was just a kind of celebration of, you know, he'd always have music playing in the evening, he'd play the piano sometimes. So it was a it was a kind of really interesting balance between living and working, you know, that I hadn't I hadn't really seen before.
0: Early on in your career you were doing a lot of work for business magazines, and then on the weekends you'd disappear into pen and ink drawings in your sketchbook, which you said led you to a bit of a split personality. Yeah. Some art directors then happened to see your personal work, and that's the type of the material that they wanted from you. Yeah. What was that like for you at the time? It was really hard. I mean, you were successful at one thing, but yeah. desirous of doing something very different.
1: Exactly. You know, I wasn't happy with the work that I was necessarily doing because it didn't feel like as if I was authoring it, you know, distinctly as my own voice. And the other thing that was a real interesting thing was, was the, the types of stories that I was being asked to illustrate were nothing like the types of stories that I wanted to be telling with my drawings, right? So, for instance, if I'm doing something about computer, you know, like a modem or something, you know, this is early days, right? If I'm doing something like that, but then I'm reading The Atlantic and there's this really interesting narrative piece or, you know, Rolling Stone has this great feature and it's, you know, it's, it's more like documentary-style drawing on some level. And there's a real kind of emotional component to those essays that I felt was completely lacking in my work. At a certain point, I, I needed to kind of push a little bit harder. And so when I started doing these pen and ink drawings in my sketchbook, I started showing them around, you know, to art directors and friends who were designers that I respected. And, you know, I wanted opinions. And, um, you know, Paul Sayer was someone. Leanne Shapton was another person I sent some to. But it was just Xerox copies of black and white line art. And I'd send with my name on the, you know, manila envelope on the outside or something with my phone number. And I started generating work, um, and that led to more of the work that I'm doing now.
0: As for the style you began to develop, you said you found the less you added in the images, the more emotionally impactful the pieces became. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. How did that simplicity actually create more resonance?
1: Yeah, it took time to get that, too. And I think a lot of what we're talking about is some of that growth that happens as an artist. You know, you you find your visual voice or your stride at a certain point and a lot of it is experimentation a lot of it's failing and I think some of that early work though it was keeping me busy you know it was a lot of just letting the line work kind of percolate to the top and then just scraping away all the foam you know what I mean of collage or mixed media things a lot of things that I was doing while in in school just a lot of searching right and then once you kind of find that mark it was more like Okay, this feels right. And all these other things don't, they feel unnecessary on some level. And I think for those who know my work, know that I rarely ever show a kind of emotional uh, feature on the faces of the characters that I draw. Um, They tend to be a bit more reserved in in that kind of illustrative device that a lot of people tend to rely on. I think about it more in terms of how close or distant people are from one another. The gesture of someone, like if someone has their head down and they're sitting on the edge of a bed and the lights are darker or the colors more muted, that is so much more powerful than if you just show tears dropping from the corners of people's eyes, right? But it took time to get to that place where I understood that about my work.
0: There are very few illustrators that I think are really successful at capturing that gesture. I think you're one. I think Alison Beckdell is one. We talked about that when she was on the show. Mm-hmm. And Chris Ware, where you can literally create an emotion with a gestural line. Yeah. Which is just remarkable.
1: Yeah, thanks. No, it's um those two artists are amazing, you know, and Chris is he's a rock star, you know, and but he's someone that really can it feels emotional, it feels psychological on some, but it also f- like that vacancy of space, not only in just individual frames, but in terms of how he designs a whole page, you know, he's masterful at it. There's a Swedish um, filmmaker named Roy Anderson, who's incredible at doing it. And it's a lot of, a lot of it oftentimes is just spacing, how close or far apart people are from one another can really define a lot and say a lot about a story without you actually having to oversell or, you know, overcook an idea.
0: You've been illustrating the New York Times Modern Love column now for many years. Disclosure here is the first thing I read. (laughs) (laughs) Now, because it's also something you can now read on Fridays, it's pretty much the first thing I'll read in the New York Times on Friday, no matter what. After all this time, your iconic illustrations still capture the essays in the most brilliant of ways. You've described how you don't replicate the writer's stories 100%, but rather create a parallel story. Is this still your approach?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, as an illustrator, you know, someone's calling on you to create a universe, to create a whole new world, you know, for readers or, you know, viewers to kind of experience. And I think if I was just going to recreate the same story, I might as well just take a photograph. And I'm not a great photographer, you know. <laughs> How did you first get the Modern Love gig? I would say it's almost been 10 years Yeah, ago, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and there were two other illustrators um, that were doing it before me. Uh, Chris Neal was the one who was doing it just before me. He's an amazing illustrator. Amazing. I you know, love his work. I don't really know why they switched gears, because uh, I thought he was doing a really lovely job. But I think because I was an art director, you know, years ago, You know, my sense is is that, you know, art directors, you you carry with you the artists that you love working with and that you really enjoy and appreciate. And I suspect that maybe they wanted some kind of change in it on on some level. But, uh, you know, that's a question for them, I guess.
0: (laughs) Now, I know you have good working relationships with your editors, but do you ever get pushback or feedback from writers in the way that some of the writers and editors get pushback or feedback from readers? Mm.
1: Not as much from the writer. Usually, if I, if I hear from a writer, it's, hey, thank you so much for, you know, you've captured something or the tone of the piece, or, you know, you really kind of, you know, you nailed it or something like that. It's, it, I don't think I've ever received, you know, an email from someone say hey, you blew it, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I haven't yet. Having said that, readers will reach out and they will say, hey, you missed this, or you might have tried doing this. On the really? Circuit. They yeah. give you
0: feedback on your illustrations? Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I read it all and I respond to all of it because it's super valuable. You know, I mean, I, when you're doing something as long as I've been doing this, this column, you, there is the concern that you kind of get into a routine, right? Or you kind of rely on, you know, familiar things. So to get that feedback is super valuable, you know, and I really appreciate it when it, when it comes in. And We had, a, there was one a reader who had read a piece—it had been posted online—and oftentimes the pieces are posted online prior to them being printed, of course. Right. And she caught something in a piece, and it was about ethnicity. And what she caught was something that I had caught, but I hadn't—I um, can't remember exactly the ethnicity of of the character in the piece. But I tend to do a lot of the work in layers uh, in Photoshop. The finish work, most of it's drawn by hand at first, but I hadn't turned on one of the layers uh, for skin tones, and the reader immediately, you know, had emailed me and said, hey, you know, this is this is not right. And she was 100% correct. And, you know, I called the Times as soon as I got that email, and I said, hey, we we need to fix this. And, you know, good on the Times, they, you know, they did immediately, you know, because they recognize this is, you know, it's important, it's important, you know. And I think the other thing, too, is it's a responsibility. You know, you're, it's a love column, sure, and we can think of that as being lighthearted and, you know, hmm, smiles and come cum- no, but it's not. not you know? And these are people's lives, and they're bearing their souls. And I've come to take it a lot more seriously, you know, um, over the years.
0: Do your illustrations ever get rejected by the editors?
1: Not the finished pieces, although there are times where, you know, an article may get, you know, swapped out at the last minute. We might have to punt at the very end and do something in so a really So they'll short change their
0: minds about the
1: actual column? And, yeah, it's happened and... maybe once or twice. Wow. But it's, it's less about them changing their minds. It's more about getting rights um, and getting approvals and things like that. And there have been moments where I think there were there was a moment um actually this past summer where I had illustrated something and when the finished piece came in, they said, Well, we were not as comfortable with this particular idea. The great thing is we have such a good relationship and, and the fact that also I've been an art director, I kind of understand some of the concerns. You were the op-ed art director for the New York Times for yeah. quite a long time. Yeah, for about almost five years. Yeah. So I think having been in that seat, I know some of the, you know, the challenges and the things that they're faced with. And we're a team, you know, and if something is, you know, not right, we all have to do our part to fix it. Having worked as an art director,
0: you've actually said it's helped you as an illustrator realize that everyone should have equal footing in the relationship, that you're working with someone rather than for someone. Yeah. But I'm curious, you have that advantage having been an art director. In the industry at large, how common do you think this is? Not very. I was going to say, I I don't come to those kinds
1: of relationships often. Yeah, and and I think it's, you know, I think part of it is just being in the industry for a long time, or, you know, as long as I have been, and and, um, people kind of come to you with knowing that you've, you've kind of experienced some things. I think as a young illustrator, I probably, you know, I certainly wouldn't have that same kind of footing. But it's important that you know, you kind of approach it in a way that you're collaborating with someone, you know, and I think that's key.
0: It must feel like you're always on deadline having to do an illustration every single week. Yeah. That's in one of <laughs> the most popular columns in the New York Times. Do you ever find yourself short on ideas?
1: No, I don't believe. Really? In, no, I don't believe in creative blocks. Someone is asking about that recently and, um, it, you know, perhaps it sounds a bit arrogant, but. I think early on, perhaps I might have felt more of those, you know, creative blocks at times, but I think, you know, because I've been practicing as an illustrator for a while, I have, a, like, there's all sorts of ideas, projects that I would love to be doing, you know, even right now, there's, you know, there's always something to do, you know, if if the fire is still burning, you know, and I love going to my studio every day, like, it, it's, it, it has never changed, it's never, that flame hasn't really ever gone out, so you know, there's always something, you know, to be working on. And in terms of working on the column week to week, the stories are so complex and different, you know, and, you know, people oftentimes say, oh, well, there's a system to order formula. There really isn't, you know, everyone's story is different. And because of that, the illustration should be too. Do you feel that you can
0: tell when you've done a particularly good illustration? Do you fall in love with your work? Do you have a a sort of trajectory (laughs) where you like it, then you hate it, then you think it's garbage, then you begin liking it again, and then you love it, and then
1: you think this is it? Yeah, I think it's that more than anything. It's a a battle. You know, you start out drawing some ideas that, you know, might look good on paper, but they might be better for other illustrators, you know, so you have to scrap those. And you're kind of digging for a while. I tend to begin most most all of my projects with writing so i'll write my way into some ideas and then i'll begin to sketch based on those things but it's a wrestling match but i love that challenge i like that wrestling match i like destroying some sketches in the beginning or even some finish work in the beginning and to get to a place where you know what that drawing feels right you know something about that line makes sense on an emotional level with that particular essay You collaborated with
0: Pablo Delcan in California Sunday Magazine on an animated short film about the director and artist Mike Mills, who's lovely. I've interviewed him as well, and what a a spectacular human. I know you were excited to work with Pablo, but were really anxious and scared by what Mike might think of the work, and when he posted the film on his blog— I read that you had a fuck-yeah-few moment.
1: <laughs> so why were you so nervous? Well, I mean, he's, you know, he's a rock star, you know, and I, I love his work. Um, and it's rare that you have a chance to not only do a drawing about another artist, but do an animated piece based on his life. And, of course, there are films that are based on his life, too. So you, you're kind of up against a lot. Yeah, Beginners is one of the, yeah, the great certainly. illustration films of all time. It's amazing, right? And so, you know, you you're kind of working against that. And... Trying to tune all that out and still deliver, you know, on the project was tough. But, um, yeah, when he posted it, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he liked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, since our last interview,
0: you've done a lot more work with animation, particularly with Pablo Del Can. In addition to the Mike Mills film, you've created television spots for the U.S. Open, a film for Marnie, one of my absolute favorite fashion labels. What about the process—I oh, have two questions about this. What about the process of animation captures you? Mm-hmm. What is it about the the moving line as yeah. opposed to the still line?
1: Yeah. Um, I think part of it is the fact that I've spent most of my career telling, like, a story one picture at a time, right? And suddenly being put in a position where you can tell a much more elaborate story or more fully fleshed-out story with lots of imagery, you know, is compelling. You know, I'm a big— Fan of films and and you know and and obviously animation, but I think for me it's a it's just new ground. Um, having an opportunity to kind of explore what I could do with my illustration work, you know, within animation seemed intriguing. Working with Pablo is amazing. He's you know he's brilliant and and we have a really good working relationship because we push each other. There's nothing that's safe. Every every idea that's put out on the table can be taken off the table and we're we are able to work together, you know, really, really well. Um on a level that I, you know, when I have a chance to work with them, it's just like a real joy, you know? So my second question is,
0: as an artist whose voice is uniquely your own, what is it like to collaborate? Yeah. How do you collaborate with people like Paul Sayre or Pablo? Yeah people who also have really singular, powerful voices. Sure.
1: Yeah. And it comes, I mean, with with Pablo, for instance, it's, you know, it comes up a lot. Like if a project comes in through his studio, you know, there's a kind of awareness or a conversation that we would have that's saying, okay, stylistically, maybe we lean a little bit more towards perhaps a more graphic approach. Uh, whereas if, if a project comes to my studio first, they're probably looking for something that's more line art, you know, illustrative on on some level. And so we, we have that decision. You know, we make that decision pretty early on. Um, Do you ever fight? No. We both want the same thing, right? We send storyboards back and forth. In a weird way, there's no, almost no authorship to it. I don't look at them as saying, oh, these are my films. And Pablo certainly doesn't feel that way either. And so the ego, we just leave that at the door and we're able to kind of produce what we, what we hope is good work, you know, um, that's telling an interesting story.
0: Let's discuss your new book. Death Wins a Goldfish, Reflections from a Grim Reaper's Year-Long Sabbatical. It's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> now, discussing its beginnings, you've written that it goes back to when you were working at the New York Times at the op-ed page, mm-hmm. and the advice your dad gave you that I mentioned in the introduction after he retired to work less, yeah. how did that impact you, and how did it lead to the book?
1: Yeah, you know, it was a kind of couple of different entry points into coming up with this idea. I think that was certainly one. I was at the tail end of my time at the at the New York Times and I had been gathering drawings in a sketchbook of, you know, based on this idea, you know, like god, I'm 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 in a cubicle, I'm at the New York Times, it's a daily section, it's a real grind, you know, I'm in New York City, it's you know a lot of pressure. And, you know, I was desperate to find some more balance in my life. You know, I was dying to live a little bit, you know, take some trips, do these kinds of things. So I wrote down dying to live in the in the sketchbook. And I started thinking about, well, you know, who works the most? If my dad's saying this, well, who works harder than him? And, you know, if we're going by the numbers, right. you know, it might be death, right? So I was doing these drawings and, and it was more like a list of ideas with a couple of little drawings here and there. And I thought maybe I would present a couple of them to... The New Yorker, perhaps as like a cartoon ideas. But the list kept growing. And it was probably like three or four pages. And then I just shelved it for a while, like 10 years. I didn't even, you know, it was just sitting, you know, collecting dust in a sketchbook. And um, I had an opportunity to work on something with Chronicle. And uh, they said, hey, do you have any ideas for a book? I thought, well, you know, this might be a chance to, you know, kind of float this out there and see if, if you know, if they bite at it. And And they did, which was, you know, Amazing. (laughs) Talk about the title. It's not only a mouthful. It's also it's dark. Yeah, Um, that was a wrestling match for sure. Because I was, you know, I was convinced "Dying to Live" was an amazing title. I was going to say, well, well, Bridget Bridget Watson Payne was like, no, that's fucking terrible. You you know, that's like a self help book. You can't do that. (laughs) And I was like, no, it sounds great. You know, but fortunately, she pushed, and, and I think you know, great editors do that. And and she. So what else do you have? What else do you have? And of course, the marketing people start creeping into it, and they, you know, they want to. Oh, those marketing people, No offense to anyone in the audience. No, <laughs> no. Um, but uh, we were really committed to coming up with something that felt unique, you know, because I thought that there needs to be an opportunity to do something that's somewhat sweet and somewhat dark, and definitely something that people won't forget.
0: Well, it's super descriptive. It is about the Grim Reaper who is told by the HR department of death, Inc., um, that he has a lot of vacation time that he has to take, and he ends up with a year of vacation time, so he has to take a year off. Yeah, He's a forced year off. How intentional was your choice of the Grim Reaper winning a goldfish, which generally has a very short shelf life, Yeah, um, and yet remains with the grim reaper for the his his almost his entire journey. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's yeah, he's there all the way through not to spoil the ending. But uh, yeah. I it, was really worried about that by I the way. Know, I was uh, like, yeah. "Oh, please
0: don't kill the goldfish." <laughs> well,
1: you know, it was this other thing that like my uh, assistant who was helping me with this uh Leonardo Santamaría is an amazing illustrator. He was he was along on the journey with me uh, doing a lot of the production and scanning of the drawings and whatnot. You know, it was great to have him in the studio cuz I could bounce ideas off of him and there, you know, the ending was something that we were trying to figure out. Because initially it was just a lot of individual scenes, a lot of individual moments, and you know he goes to the state fair. What's he going to do at the state fair? Oh, well, we all know what happens with the goldfish. Well, there's a really interesting tie-in. So, as as a reader, you have this idea of what normally would happen with the goldfish that you bring home, you know, that you bring home from the state fair. But can we flip that upside down? Can they become buddies? Can they, you know, is there something that they're going to do beyond this? And and so this, and there really aren't any other reoccurring characters in the book necessarily. So. In that way it's really, it's a bit unconventional. And so trying to use that device all the way through the book in parts to kind of give it a little bit more pacing was helpful.
0: You've said that the book is not about dying, but about living. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: It's a reminder that time is short and it's a reminder that time is precious. You know, I, I had a child, you know, almost three years ago now and I was working on the book right, you know, right after he was born. And and, um, you know, you start to think a little bit more about these things. You know, you have less time in front of you than you, you know, than you have behind you. And so all these things, they matter. Oftentimes, I, you know, I would think about the, you know, the book and I'd say, oh, well, you know, if I had a different character rather than death, could it be a carrot? Could it be a unicorn? Could it be a bun You know, what would the other... And you can't really do that because having the Grim Reaper is just a complete cliche. You know, it's it's an archetype that... You know, everyone knows what it looks like. Everyone has this kind of vision of what that is. But it really is a reminder on each page that, you know, time is precious.
0: I was thinking a lot about the notion of the book being about living versus dying. And as someone who had somebody very, very important to me die recently, I was rereading the book in preparation for our show today with an entirely new perspective Mm. and— I think that the book is is really more than a book about living Mm -hmm. versus dying. I think it's about learning to live. Mm.
1: Yeah. That's a really great way to put it, actually, yeah.
0: Because the Grim Reaper has never had this experience of living. No. And so you see the firsts. Yeah, The first time he goes to a state fair, the first time he goes to a karaoke bar, the first time he takes a class, Mm -hmm. the first time he goes to a frat party Mm -hmm. in ways that are bittersweet, clever, absurd,
1: surreal, Mm -hmm. and yet perfectly normal. Yeah. I'm glad that you got that from the book. I mean, I think in in the back of my mind, that's certainly what I hope people— you know, other people get from it as well. I mean, because he's almost kind of naive in his approach. I mean, he spent his entire career taking lives away. Now he's suddenly amongst the living. Right. And he's learning how to conduct himself within that universe. And and it's, yeah, sure, it's a bit of holding a mirror up to us as a crazy culture. It, you know, he does CrossFit. He, you know, puts together a dating profile, you know, these kinds of things. And and all that's, that kind of leans into that absurd, you know, for sure. But then there are moments where he's he's in a hotel, you know, looking out on the on the city and he's smoking a cigarette, which is of course a lot a of smoking help. in yeah, the book. Yeah, I yeah, figured exactly. that Grim yeah. Reaper is yeah. allowed to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, he can do what he wants. Um, he's got some vices. Um, <laughs> but he's thinking about the time that he's had and he's contemplating what he's learned and, and, and the people that he that, you know, has he has he grown? Has he changed? You know, and these are questions that I think we all ask ourselves.
0: Throughout the book, we see Death's diaries from this time. We don't ever actually witness or observe Death talking, no. which was an interesting choice. Yeah, and I'm assuming very intentional. Yeah,
1: yeah. Initially, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of crazy to think about it this way, but but the book was only going to be drawings alone. There wasn't there wasn't actually going to be a, a written component to it. And pretty quickly on, we realized this is missing a gear. There was a lot more that I wanted to say, and I think Bridget was kind of hoping for. Kind of getting a little bit more blood out of the stone, you know, kind of thing. And so she she was pushing me, and we worked out this idea of doing it more journalistic. The great luxury in doing that is that I don't have to develop a voice. But in some respects, I did. Oh yeah, I, really I was clear. gonna I was gonna
0: challenge you on that one because yeah. I feel like the Grim Reaper. Has a very distinct voice yeah. in, in this, yeah.
1: And in my mind, I've always seen it almost like a like an animation or film. I've, you know, I, when I was working on the book, I drafted it all. It's like a story, you know, like one long storyboard, like one hundred and sixty something pages, with little drawings and writing that I would change over and over and over again. But I think the writing part, because I'm not an author, I certainly don't have that experience of doing that. That was the hardest part of the book is trying to find the sweet spot between language enough writing to you know, move the story forward, but also allow the drawings to kind of drive the story. So they they're kind of um, they dovetail together, and there's a really easy trap to fall into that I kept repeating and and failing and then figuring it out, which is to overtell a story, whether it's too much in the drawing too much in the writing. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, That's know, one someone, of the yeah.
0: hardest thing about visual storytelling yeah. is yeah. you have to have
1: the visual and the verbal
0: completely intertwined. Yeah. If one is overwhelming the other, then it's no longer a visual story. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I've spent, you know, my entire career telling stories with pictures alone. Suddenly I have an opportunity to use language and it's um, it's almost like too much. So, you know, along the way, I was, you know, writing and rewriting, writing and rewriting and asking people that I know who are writers Opinions, you know, and, and getting feedback from a lot of different people. And, um, and that, you know, my brother is, a, is an editor and a writer. And so I was getting his feedback and some other friends. And, and, um, and it was invaluable, you know, and, and it was almost like I was learning a whole new way to create, you know, which was kind of special.
0: I love the narrative, the, the arc of the journals mm. through the calendar year. Like you, Death makes lists. Yeah. um, the diary entries are touching and also kind of darkly hilarious On February third, Death writes, "I'm not big on words. What's there to say, really? Come with me. No, you can't bring the dog. <laughs> it's, it's always the same things. and i'm I'm wondering how much your own fears or relationship with death played into, the way you portrayed the Grim Reaper.
1: Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of my voice in it, for sure, and a lot of my anxieties and, and things that I've thought about. You know, so it's definitely holding a mirror up to myself. You know, there are journal entries that are straight out of old travel journals that I had. I mean, the you know, there's a page that is about going to the Redwood Forest, stepping inside a tree, and that's directly pulled from one of my old journals from forever ago. But there are also moments where it's a, a reflection of us as a, as a culture, you know, as a creative culture. Even when we're away from work we oftentimes are still thinking about work. We right. never turn the light off. And and he does that too, where he's you know reading the obituaries, just checking in at the office just to see what's going on.
0: I know, I love that. The writing is, is so unique. It, you have such a really clear visual and verbal voice. Death describes a carnival this way. It's nuts, like a thousand sugary smiles covered in lights, all spinning and screaming at once. And then Death muses, it's the wind that makes the trees talk. You have to be listening. And I think that must have been then from your, your own journal about yeah. the redwood trees. Yeah. What was it like to be wholly responsible for this part of the book after working with the words of others throughout your career?
1: Yeah. Um, it was only after the book I started getting the comps back of the book. It's like a whole book, you know, kind of bound or, you know, getting page proofs and things like that, that I started to think about, wow, this is this is actually going to be something I hold in my hands. Um, we had such a short turnaround time to produce the book because we, we had condensed and compressed the schedule in order to get it out in the spring of 2019. So it was a real assembly line at the studio. I would draw, write, rewrite, redraw. Um, Sounds like the way
0: that you approach the work in Malcolm Gladwell's book, too. I remember you saying very, something very, very similar. Very,
1: very similar. Yeah, very similar. And um, the fortunate thing in both of those cases, I had really great people around me to make it look special you know or make it look accurate and um that assembly line process in, in a weird way is it's almost kind of therapeutic in some respects it's a bit like working at the new york times a daily section you, you know your routine you're kind of going in there you know i have to do this many pieces each day this kind of thing and once we got into that routine it was get it done in the, by the deadline but then it was afterwards where i was like wow this we just made a book in like three and a half months this is like crazy crazy thing to think about you know um and it started getting me to think about more writing. You know, it opened up that little part of my brain that, thought, oh, there's maybe there's a few other stories in here too. And are there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When are they going to be emerging? Well, I, I did a, f- a piece with um, the New York Times Magazine during the summer months. There was a travel issue that they did or a journeys issue. It was written an illustrated piece. It was like, I think, eight pages about... Um, A gift that my mother-in-law gave us. Uh, She's from Sweden, and she gave us this gift of a patch of mushrooms in a forest on an island. And so writing about that experience in this place and kind of thinking about it when you're far away from it, and and we all have something like that. But what's interesting is I've been keeping a book just about ideas. And I'll write a page or two, and then I'll move on, and then I'll write another page or two and move on. And quite a few of them are actually children's books' ideas but with a kind of slant more towards an emotional storytelling kind of voice, uh, something related to life and, and you know, the specialness of it in some level.
0: How would you categorize this book? Would you categorize it as a children's book for adults or an adult book that children could learn from?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been really hard to kind of put it into a category. I would say it's an adult book that, you know, hopefully kids steal from their parents. <laughs> You feature some of Death's paintings
0: in the book. So Death becomes an artist, mm-hmm. and Death starts to create these canvases. How hard was it for you to create an entirely different style? Because Death is not mimicking the visual language of the book. It's no. an entirely different visual language. Yeah,
1: that was a, that was kind of like a playful departure. I didn't think we could go there too many times, but I thought, well, if he's going to be an artist, he's going to produce some things. I mean, a number of those pieces are just—they're um, my palettes from, like, my ink washes and things. But I love the look of them, and I thought, well, i got to get these in here. And fortunately they made it, you know, they made it through the edit. But it's just another way of kind of bringing perspective to the book and treat it more like an art book and less like a comic book because I thought it was it was something else, you know. And though I love comic books, it, it, it felt like there was an opportunity here to do something different. I mean, I think there's also one part where he goes to the museum— and he's, he, he sees this painting that, you know, everyone is is familiar with, The Death of Murat. And that was an opportunity to kind of flex my photorealism skills, I suppose. <laughs> but the selection of that piece was really critical to making that singular page compelling. I mean, well, the obvious one to go with would have been The Scream, right? Because everyone knows that one. Or something by Gustav Klimt or something else that is kind of in, scarier scarier, or, you know, but of course, those two pieces are really hard to draw. <laughs> um, the thing about the Death of Marat piece and selecting that piece for that is that there was a real quietness to that, that image. And also, if, you know, there's any art history nerds in the audience, they know that that was about a journalist who was killed. And so that kind of spoke to a little bit about the politics that we're living in today, you know, and though there isn't a lot of politics in the book, that was one opportunity to kind of sneak some of it in.
0: Well, the the allure of the busy culture, the busyness yeah. culture is pervasive through the book. Yeah. And you mentioned before the notion of having fewer days uh, in front of you than you have behind you. There were two bits of the book that reminded me of different things that you've learned in your own life through your grandfather or your father. I'm in the middle of the book, Death Reflects and States. It's occurred to me that now I have fewer vacation days in front of me Mm. than behind. Perhaps I should try and fill the remaining time with more meaningful things. I've certainly done a lot of stuff and met quite a few interesting people. But what have I learned? and I think that that's something that so many of us can relate to. As I'm yeah. getting older now, there's no question. For a while, it was sort of like 50-50, like maybe I have yeah. a few days more in yeah. front than behind, but now no. Yeah. And and how do I remake a life that feels meaningful? Mm-hmm. How do I start to make choices that feel better about who I want to be, mm-hmm. given I have less time? Yeah. How
1: are you grappling with those questions? And for me, as a creative person, you think about it, in terms of how many projects can you produce, you know? This project is one of the more ambitious projects I've worked on, you know, in the last few years, but that takes time, you know? That takes, you know, quite a few months to develop, you know, it takes years of, you know, developing the story and, you know, you start thinking about, okay, so how many more of those do I have? You know, how many more opportunities do I have to produce special work and what are you leaving behind? What is it that you're trying to say with your work? And and does the work that you created, does it have impact on people's lives? I think about that a lot more now. Being a father, my time in the studio is a lot more precious. It's compressed to a certain degree. So I have to be more efficient in the studio. And I and I also have to be maybe more selective about the things that I'm working on that are coming into the studio. And then also being really selective about what I'm putting out there. Because I think now that I'm maybe shifting a little bit more towards authoring, art directing, and illustrating rather than just illustrating someone else's words, so now I'm being a bit more selective okay, which ones of these really have some weight? I'm, am I going to be f- really passionate about throughout the entire project and, and that I'm going to be really proud to produce? Um,
0: I'm assuming that you either have to self-select more and say no more mm. for opportunities coming in, but also have to say no more to your own ideas yeah. about things you want to pursue. Yeah. How has that been to navigate? How, do you feel scared
1: saying no? Um, less so now. You know, it's a kind of learned language because it's it's a luxury to be to be in that position. Not many people are. But you, you I think over time, you get a little bit better at sniffing out the projects that are going to be exciting to work on. You're working, you know, you know really early on, oh, this is someone that I've never worked with or this is someone who I'm excited about working with. We have a kind of similar interest and we're kind of heading in the same direction in terms of an idea for this. And then there are times where, you you know, the flag starts going up really early on in the project. And, you know, maybe that's, that's one you want to avoid. But I think getting to your question about balancing the two things between commissioned work versus, you know, personally driven projects, fortunately I've had some kind of space in the schedule to kind of work out some of the ideas, and then it's going to be a matter of just kind of picking ones off the shelf that I'm really excited about working on first.
0: I'm wondering if you can read a short excerpt from your new book. It is one that I took a long time thinking about, and I was really happy when I asked you earlier before the show if if you would mind reading that. You said it was your favorite spread in the book.
1: Okay. My whole life up to this point has been about other people, mostly leaving. What can I say? It's, It's my job. It's who I am. But if there is one big thing I've learned this past year, it's that quality time with others is important and that smiles count. I've learned to take people in rather than taking them out. (laughs) Anyway, time is short and all that, so I'm going to get to it, living. Thank you. It's such a beautiful, beautiful book, Brian. Thank you so much for writing
0: it. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Tell us, before
1: I let you go, what you're going to be doing next. Hopefully more writing. There's a few uh, projects that uh, are going to be hard to to just leave on the shelf for 10 years, and uh, hopefully there'll be another book or two in the future.
0: Have you gotten any closer to the dream
1: assignment of painting a plane? Not yet, no. But okay. uh, every time I come on your show, I'm going to remind yeah, people about gonna it. Yeah, we're going to remind <laughs> those big branding agencies. Brian
0: Ray wants to paint a plane. <laughs> we'll leave our listeners in anticipation for the answer when you come back again. That sounds great. Brian Ray, thank you so much for joining me today again on Design Matters. And thank you for making such a big impact in the world with both your art and now your writing. Brian's latest book is titled Death Wins a Goldfish Reflections from a Grim Reaper's Year-Long Sabbatical You can find out more about Brian Ray and his work on his website brianray.com and see his illustrations every week in the New York Times This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening and remember, we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both
2: I'm Debbie Millman and I look forward to
0: talking with you again soon
2: A special thanks to our partners, AC Hotels by Marriott, member of Marriott Bonvoy, and Allbirds. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.